0: So go, go ahead with it. You know, lay out your plan and execute on your plan. Uh, I think we're living in different times. And I think also the context in which we, we're litigating has changed a little bit. And this idea that you, you're gonna hold back and that's what's gonna make you successful, it, it's, it's not.
1: Welcome to Love Council. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. And that was the incomparable Marie Hennon. After a hiatus, driven by COVID, We're back and with guests like Marie, it's sure to be one of the best seasons yet of this series. We hope you subscribe and share these remarkable advocates. All rise. So first of all, I can't say how happy I am to start Of Counsel Back Up. As you may or may not know, we've had a podcast going for a few years. COVID took a real hit to that. People seemed to enjoy it. It was uh, through law schools. People kept saying, when's it coming back? and i thought the only way i'm bringing this back is if i can get a really really great lineup and i'm very very pleased to say that marie hennen has agreed to be one of those headliners so thank you so much for being part of this
0: my pleasure my pleasure
1: i thought i'd start with a story i have that i think is very common for you i can only guess how many times you've heard this in different forms so i'll give you my marie hennen story Okay. <laughs> I, I was, um, I started off in law school thinking, I wanna go do corporate law, and to be completely blunt, you know, I I didn't, I had a lot of law school debt, and I thought, I just wanna make money, and I wanna try, and I thought, you know, that's what a lawyer does. And my friend convinced me to summer with uh, Bob Richardson, um, Ralph Steinberg's Chambers, and Ralph was on the Bar- Maddie Baranowski case. Right. And so Bob said to me, you have to go over and watch some of this cross examination. So at that point, I I really didn't have that much interest in criminal law, although I did finish Eddie's book while I was waiting for my principal to come in a a few days prior. So I I was starting, but um, I sat down and I was about midway through your cross watching it. And I remember thinking to myself, This is so awesome. But I also remember thinking I can't do this because I couldn't conceive how one could cross examine so um, meticulously and and get people to agree and make it look also natural. So in in many ways it motivated me to become a criminal lawyer, but in other ways it made me appreciate just how difficult uh, it is to appear natural and ultimately persuasive
0: that's a throwback yes that's a real throwback that that was uh yeah that was quite some time ago that was when i started my practice that was sort of the big the first big case i had when i went out on my own
1: so my question then is because at some point i should ask you questions rather than just give speeches of how i got (laughs) into it but um do you do you um feel that sense of uh, responsibility in your position as an advocate, knowing that people are watching you so closely and knowing how many young lawyers that you're motivating? To.
0: Well, I, di- I didn't start out that way. I certainly figured that nobody, not only were they not watching me, uh, that they probably had no idea who I was. So it's sort of funny that you're you're referencing that case, because that was, looking back, uh, one of the very first Cases that I started getting some profile on but I wasn't thinking of myself uh, in that way uh, I think as I got older and and circumstances, you know, many of which are beyond your control put you in a particular Position in and in a bit more of a public profile than I had ever anticipated uh, I was very uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, Not only people were watching but that my colleagues were watching that young lawyers were watching that um, you were reflecting what um, a lawyer does and um, how they behave to members of the public. And for our own profession, you were, uh, I think, reflecting back, I hope, um, what we do and what we can do and, and ge- to give them, uh, I think a a sense of pride and be a sense that it, this is achievable. Uh, particularly uh, for uh, women and racialized lawyers, I think it's also important that they were seeing somebody that was very much um, sort of front and center in a public profile. And I I remember um, after one of my cases, I had spoken to the Advocacy Society women's groups, and I said, you know, as much as... um, you know you were watching i want you to know that i was so aware that you were watching everything i was doing and that that really gave me a sense of strength uh that i knew that i was reflecting more than you know myself or or my own agenda so i am mindful of it now i i hope uh, i'm a, a positive influence but it certainly didn't start out that way
1: i'm sure you're more comfortable now in court than you were when you started out as a lawyer but do you ever get a complete sense of ease as a lawyer now that you have the experience you do?
0: I. Uh, the truth is I do have a sense of ease, yeah, and I have a complete sense of ease in a courtroom uh, in the sense that, uh, and it's always been my uh, predisposition, even academically, that I don't like uh, being agitated the moment before I'm about to do something. So I actually really need to be, in control and at ease uh, before I walk into court and um, feel very relaxed so you know when you're young you're obviously understandably nervous and there's also a personality type that feeds off nervous energy it really works I find it profoundly distracting just for me mm-hmm. I really need to be in control of myself first of all because if I'm not then I'm not in control of, of the environment of the witness and of what's happening so I am very relaxed in court. I mean, if I'm I'm in court at that point, I am very comfortable with where I am and uh, happy to be there because I love being in a courtroom. But uh, I just I just feel like I'm at peace there. I don't I don't feel um, nervous in, in any way at all
1: and i know that's because you're so well prepared but is there a tipping point where you feel okay now i'm i'm ready is it is it an hour before is it a week before is it yeah change
0: it does change actually i think it changes a with your level of experience i think it changes with the nature of the case you know you can see uh you know people were watching a a, let's say a two three three and a half hour cross-examination and uh not knowing that that was three months in in preparation Uh, And depending on the nature of the case, you know, there there's a time where I need to have pens down and Often it it could be as much as a month before a case because I need to have done everything I need to have done the reviews the the rewrites the everything and then I need to let it go Uh, I need to just now sit with it a bit and also, be ready to deal with the things that you don't expect. You know what trials are like that that come at you, and you have to respond to. Now, we don't always have the luxury of doing that. But even on appeal, you know, I, I tend to want to sort of be done the the work uh, a day or so before. I, I don't want to be doing it the moment before because I find that I just I just need to to think about it and and sit with it, and I need to have the running room to go back to stuff if I if I need it. So. It depends on on the nature of the case, but I, I really dislike being rushed or harried or feeling like I, I just I don't have a grasp of everything.
1: I don't know if you found this, but um, especially for me over the past couple of years, my I've actually had an increase in I wouldn't I don't know if I call it anxiety, but just the tension. And I think it's partly because maybe it's the cases we do become more complicated, um, or maybe it's because you realize what a good job really requires. uh, It takes me a lot longer to get to that sense of ease. And I look back and I think it's because I was probably a lot too, er it was too arrogant before thinking that I've got it. And, and then when you see some people do it or do it the right way, one time you realize, Oh boy, I really scratched the surface on the last one, despite perhaps a favorable result.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to leave the impression with, with people listening to this, that uh, it's breezy. It's not breezy. It's, it's a, it's a slog most of the time, and it's boring, and you have to be disciplined, and you have to discipline yourself to sit through it. It's hours and hours and hours to get to like the two, three hours where you think you've uh, you've got it. Um, and there's no amount of hard work uh, that is enough ever. I just really am a, a believer in that. I don't think you can be over prepared. I don't think you can uh, work too hard and. It is stressful. I mean, as the types of cases you're doing uh, become bigger, the truth is there is always so much at stake for for clients, right? It doesn't matter whether it's an assault or it's it's a murder, there is a great deal of stake. It's such a life changer. Um, I think as you get older a little bit, you also, the cynicism seems to seep away a little bit, you know, the sort of detached uh, view of everything and you, you do feel it more i mean you feel the responsibility of it quite intensely so I, it's interesting i don't i don't think that's unusual your experience i think that's actually it's it's common as you as you get older in the profession and you realize how much turns on on you
1: it's interesting you say that because you sort of articulated what I've been trying to figure out what it is and i think that's right is that you become less cynical and you think maybe you'd become more because you see more and more but I've learned to a trust the judges a lot more and I've also um, found it very dissonant to walk into a lot of lawyers lounges anymore because of that type of tension and toxicity sometimes. Well I
0: I think it's uh, as my father always says when I annoyed him it's you know the (laughs) arrogance of youth but uh, you just learn this was another one of his sayings uh, from Twain is that you know the the older you get the the more you realize how little you know and it's true that that it just begins to i think weigh on you a little bit more heavily you know the good news is that as you get older i'm sure you find this that more senior lawyers consult with each other yes. than younger lawyers because i think you have such an understanding that every move every strategic decision has such incredible consequences you see it now but i think when you're younger you don't quite see all of the of the cascading impacts of your decisions so I find that um, older lawyers uh, tend to consult with each other much more. You know, in in my office, not only internally, but externally, we are constantly talking things through uh, and um, trying to engage younger lawyers to do the same with each other. Uh, So, yeah, I I don't think it's strange, Sean. Actually, I think it sort of makes sense. Like you just have a bigger awareness of, of what your role is and what it is you're doing.
1: Well, I've, I've been doing a lot of consulting with you of sorts lately because I just listened to your book and mm. you read the book, which mm-hmm. is, <laughs> yeah, I, I love that because I, I go to audible all the time for any type of reading. And I was so happy to see not only could I get your book on it, but you had read it and I, I really, really enjoyed it. So my first question is, um, what, uh, what did, made you decide I, I want to uh, get this story out?
0: So I had been, uh, not wanting to get any story out. I had been pitched uh, quite a bit to write a book by a variety of people and publishers. And it was sort of the standard thing, which is we want you to write about your cases. I I get it. Uh, There's high profile cases. And I just wasn't going to do it. It's not the thing I'm interested in writing about or talking about. Uh, It's just not my thing. And so I kept saying no. Um, And it was a bit of a slow uh, uh, transition for me in terms of Coming to think that I did have something to say that I wanted to share, uh, both with I think members of the public about what we do, and also with uh, with the profession and uh, about who I am, because I began to feel uh, that you know what you were seeing uh, displayed publicly uh, was really you know, one dimensional and that it was a bit caricature, you know, the tough bitchy female lawyer and in four inch heels sort of thing. And I thought, wow, I mean, that's all true. I am that. (laughs) Uh, But is if that's what you're looking at and you think that's sort of the paradigm of what I need to do to be successful, then I'm doing a profound disservice to other young lawyers who are looking at that thinking that's what you have to be. And, And that wasn't a complete picture. So that began to really bother me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I decided, it sort of it, it became um, a little organic for me, but what it was that I wanted to write. And I, I spoke to a publisher who I said, okay, I'm not gonna write about my cases, so you might not want me to do it, and they were fine. Um, and then I wrote a little bit because I wanted to write it. I wasn't gonna have someone else write for me. I wasn't gonna write with a ghostwriter. And truly, I didn't know whether I could or could not write or whether it was a style that would work. And you know they liked it, and uh, and I was off and running. So that's honestly the the, the motivation for it was just to uh, put a, a bit more of a complete uh, context to what people were seeing, and and hopefully also have an opportunity to speak to members of the public about what we do and why we do it.
1: As I was listening to it, um, we, the first two chapters um, cover you know your family um really interesting topics of of how you got into law and a lot of the influence you had and how strong familiar s- support is, is so important to that and um but as we got into the legal parts i started to think uh are you going to talk about your cases at all and then i realized what was so fascinating about the book and and unique and masterful was you were putting out the lessons that uh, you would get from reading Eddie's book for the defense, um, but but in a way that didn't have to refer to the individuals. And I, I thought that was great because not only did it not perhaps compromise people's privacy or not wanting to bring up issues once again, um, but it really, the issues that were most important really stood out. And um, what, what chapter do you think you liked? writing the best was it the legal part or, or is it hard to quantify it that way
0: i think it's hard to quantify because for me that it, it so i saw it sort of in three sections because there are all parts of me that i wanted to talk about and the law for me is more than a profession it's very much part of my identity you know when you talk about uh, uh discussing what we do I think you have to also recognize the environment we're in, and, and that if you have an audience, and I'm trying to explain something, if the paradigm or the or the, or the case that I'm using is one that you have strong feelings about, I, you're not going to want to listen to me. You're going to want to, understandably, express your very strong views about it. And so, uh, yeah, I taught for many, many years at, at law school, and so I, I really was trying to uh, use examples and context that. Uh, people would be receptive to, to understand a little bit more about the theory of what we do and why we do it or why certain laws exist. So, you know, that was a, a deliberate choice on my part because I don't wanna start by alienating my reader and and having them have a view without me having an opportunity to try to explain them and, and, and take them along with me. Um, so, you know, I loved writing that stuff. Of course, I loved uh, writing the stuff about my my family. That was probably the toughest part because uh, i'm i'm a private person wow. um and then the last part i think just was a, a natural of where my head was at at the time that i was writing
1: there's there's so much to unpack in this book and i, I you know obviously this podcast isn't going to cover it all but i i can't uh, emphasize how important it is for every person listening to this to read the book listen to the book and like i said the fact that you were you were reading it um uh, is even better because you feel like I'm in the car with me <laughs> telling <laughs> me all her stories. This is fantastic. Um, but you know, I, I, I think, um, what surprised me to be honest was how transparent you were on these things and that, um, transparency, um, demonstrated the authenticity behind these stories and the struggles that you went through. And I, I, th- I would hope that um, people listening to it uh, are gonna get a lot of motivation from that because um, everyone has their own struggles of how they got to where they were as a lawyer. And I think what's what's really motivating from, from your um, story is how hard you had to work to get where you are. Now, this did not come easy.
0: No, no, I, I, my mother always said that, like nothing's easy for you, which is true. And I, I don't say it as a complaint. I'm just, uh, I'm a very hard worker by nature and none of it was you know, I'm not a, a a legacy person in this in this business. I have no family that did this this work. We had no understanding of really exactly what the 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 business or industry was. You know, you're female, you're an immigrant, um, and and all of that. So, uh, a I knew I had to work hard. I, I knew I would be able to get into this profession and and be a lawyer, which really was the goal. The rest that comes is how do you control. Any of that you know I always say to young lawyers how do you anticipate that I don't know what case is gonna walk into my office I also don't know what they're gonna write about me I have no control over any of it so that stuff you know that does happen later in my career was not my goal my goal was to become a professional to be a lawyer to be a criminal defense lawyer and to to really really be good at it and that's just a a function of, of really really hard work and being a little single-minded which has and i'm candid about it pros and cons to it but you know one of the reasons that that i i also wrote it in that way uh and i thought i had to be transparent and and authentic was You know, I remember my publisher saying, you know, your story is so extraordinary. And I said, it's actually not extraordinary. I am one of uh, millions that had this experience in this country. And I think that the reason it's relevant is that it's gonna resonate. There's nothing special about me there. I am just emblematic. And I always say, like, I could have written anyone's story because we all have them. Um, And the point of it was that, Uh, the point of it was to, to, to connect um, with with so many of us that have this experience that come into this profession and don't have you know moms and dads that are lawyers and judges that you know come from these backgrounds and and are trying to get you know trying to get your footing uh, you know I remember going to the CLA events with Eddie and he's such a star and I would stand off in the corner and I'd be just so amazed, like how everybody knows him, and he know he like he talks to all these judges, and he's so relaxed, and how cool is that? And wow, that'll never be. I'll never be like that. And I just remember watching it all, and just thinking, you know that that's so foreign to what I think my life will be like, and what my experience will be in this in this business. Um, and I just think a lot of us come from that. Whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, that that we come from this in mean, this country has been built on the backs of immigrants. And um, so I don't think I'm unique in that way. I just happen to have a platform and told the story.
1: Well, well well-articulated story. And I think that's part of it is that you have um, a very, um, uh, well, you have the voice of an advocate, the voice of persuasion, someone who can tell a story and and make people get on board. And I think that is perhaps what's unique about it. I think it'd be harder for perhaps another professional, like an engineer, to explain all that because it is your profession to tell stories. And just before we started, um, you were talking about how some of the skills are transferable to the book, um, that you were able to read it in record time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I mean, they they said they wanted to do an audio book, the publisher, and I said, okay, great, who are you gonna get to, to read it? And they said, well, you have to read it. I said okay fine i've never done this before but it was funny i was able to do it in a very quick time we had all sorts of sessions book that we didn't need uh and i didn't realize you know our skill to speak publicly uh, the cadence at which we speak all of that translates into <laughs> into audiobooks so maybe it's a second career
1: yeah one thing that stood out to me and i hope this isn't too personal but you mentioned um sammy and his influence and one of the passages in the book was I think it was your grandmother who wondered whether he would, was bullied or perhaps you had suspicions he was bullied. And that resonated with me because uh, when I grew up, I had a real problem with bullies. And I think that in many ways, when I look back on it, influenced me to become a defense lawyer. And I wonder, do you feel that at all? That perhaps, A, if you felt that he was bullied, and, and do you think that impacted your drive to be the defense lawyer instead of a prosecution
0: i think being an outsider is what drove me i I just i'm not a i'm not a person who likes the status quo there's nothing that makes my head explode than being told it's the way it's always been done i i I just it's not my my natural inclination is slightly oppositional that's the truth and so it was just such a natural fit for my personality i'm just drawn to that side. Like I like being on the side of the underdog. I like being on on the side of the tough fight. I hate people assuming things. I, I just so it was my natural disposition, my natural inclination is there. And if I were really t- to be sort of thoughtful about it uh, and try to track it. And this is what surprised me about the book, to be honest. I, I think it all comes back to that that feeling that you're just always on on the outside and on the on the fringes a bit. Um, that made me want to sort of fight the man a little and sort of you know if you don't think I'm good enough to join your club then I'll I'll take it down
1: do you still feel that way now that you kind of own the club no I
0: I don't feel like I own the club at all and I think it would be wrong for people to think that the club's alive and well um, I can assure you and we don't get invited easily so I don't feel like I own the club um, and yes, I do still feel that way very much. And that's what surprised me is that, you know, the book ends the, the place that began. And when I sort of put it away, uh, and came back to it. Uh, I was just struck by how that Experience just being an immigrant and being an outsider is the thing that you know Even in my 50s <laughs> is still the thing that rankles me. Uh, it's quite incredible it So if you want like that's the thing that gets under my skin It's still very deeply felt, you know, whether it's imagined or not. I I, I can't tell you I don't think it is but that sense of not being part of the of the club because you're not from here because you're not white because you're female um that that just doesn't go away now it doesn't intimidate me and it doesn't inhibit me you know does it piss me off for sure does it make me angry for sure does it make me want to go places that i probably shouldn't go you know or do things that you know the assumption is you have no business being here yeah that's absolutely a driver for me uh is to to do things that people think well you know you shouldn't be doing that
1: yeah and and I I certainly didn't mean to uh, minimize that because what I was getting at is in your book I think you touched upon this that this this feeling that no matter what you do or what you achieve you're always going to have this sense of being an outsider and I th- I think I hope that that resonates with with people who are feeling the same way. Um I'm sure you know a lot of people listening to this feel that they are outsiders that they'll never belong and yeah and yet they look at you and and think I'm Regardless of that, I hope one day I can get to that point.
0: Well, I, and I'm sure they can. I have done it, but um, you know, you get over. I think you get over the um, the desperation to belong. I think that that's something that. But it doesn't stop sort of being apparent to you that you know you're not invited to certain uh, to certain events and to certain uh, certain clubs. Uh, whether, as I said, whether it's because you know you're not a long time you weren't born here or because you're female. Uh, You know, we were in a profession that uh, has for the longest time been pretty uh, focused uh, on men. So that's, that's still evident and you still feel it. You're aware of it. It doesn't daunt me. It doesn't inhibit me in any way. But as I said, it does it piss me off for sure.
1: Mm -hmm. Looking back to the book, is there something you wish you had included or perhaps wish you should have left out?
0: That's such a good question. I, There are other things I probably would have want to have included. You know, one of the the parts that I didn't make it um, was a discussion of high school for me because I went to an all-girls Catholic school. But the reason I wanted to write it was that my best friends, Rita and Laura, who do make appearances in the book and are, uh, you know, still uh, my closest friends, um, were very... Formative for me in terms of my personality and accepting me and just all of that and I wrote that chapter I must have written it about seven or eight different times and I just could never quite Capture them in the way that I wanted to in a way that I think reflected them in the way I'd like to. and I just couldn't do it and I you know afterwards I said to them, I'm so sorry. it's you didn't make it not because I didn't want you there, but because I couldn't I just couldn't get it right. And I wonder whether I was just a little restrained because you know these are people that are are, are relatively young and alive and you don't you know you don't feel like you have necessarily the same freedom that you would to sort of explain how fabulous they are, but to to give their context. and so, that bugs me that I couldn't write that properly. I, I just, because what, what you lost from that was the, um, incredible, incredible through line of, you know, very strong women in my life. And, and mm. they were two are two of the strongest. And I just, I didn't nail it. I just couldn't do it. So that, that bugs me. So you're me, still friends
1: with them. Oh <laughs> yeah, for oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> They're still
0: talking to me. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's
1: great. I, I love kind of on that topic. I, I love the quote, um, I believe it was from your grandmother that said, We, we, the uh, things disappear that we don't pay attention to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sad that I, some of my friends during high school that are close to me have faded away. And it's hard to keep those relationships when you go off to school and you went off to New York for school. Sure. And, but that's, that's really great that you're able to hold on to them and yes. they're still able to be such important parts of your life. Um, Tell me about, and we touched upon this already, but another thing that really stood out in in the book is the phrase, the unbearable whiteness of being. What does that mean to you? And uh, maybe it's just an elaboration of what we were talking about.
0: I I think it is. uh, You know, this is uh, this profession, and there are aspects of of it that are particularly so, is a a profession that was initially established uh, by white males. And the Although we like to believe that we have progressed so much because you know all these firms have diversity committees and all of it we've done a lousy job of actually promoting um uh, the people who are uh, not white male and uh we're trying to correct it but pretty late in the day uh, which is why you don't have at the senior levels you have very few people uh that are um are not part of that uh, that contingency and i think you see it Really, pretty vibrantly in certain types of law. I think you'll see it a lot in, in corporate and commercial litigation, where that lock is still felt very strongly, and you can you can actually see it. Um, in other areas, uh, less so, uh, because they were viewed as less desirable areas of law to practice. Right, so those dregs were sent to uh, to, to the others. So we've, you know, we've succeeded, I think, in areas that presumptively originally were viewed as sort of less valuable areas of law, but that, that lock is still there. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's got a ways to go.
1: I, I, when I was reading your book, three moments really stood out to me as, as being very proud moments in your legal career. One is Eddie highlighting the formidable article, uh, by Christy Blatchford, Another was your father sending flowers after a particularly difficult case, and then um, seeing the pride in your father when he tells others that you're his daughter and the reason for keeping the last name. Um, is there moments where um, you feel that there's well perhaps other pride, proud moments that you left out in the book that I mean, I imagine any case is is obviously a proud moment when you win it. But do any other stand out?
0: Well, the, the definitely. I mean, there are there are moments. I, I think probably the proudest moments for any lawyer when we look back on our, our careers are those moments, and they're few and far between, where you think that your presence, your involvement, actually turned it a bit or or had an impact. Uh, and you remember those moments, whether it's in an oral argument at the court of appeal or or whatever, where you feel like, all right, I, I actually, I my presence, my existence made a difference to the outcome. You know, those those moments make you feel like you're you're here for a reason and you're you did the right thing in the profession that you chose. Uh, I think those are significant. I, I think it gives me a great deal of pride when when um, young lawyers um, feel inspired in any way by me. I, that is. A big deal for me um it's really really meaningful um so th- there are a lot of moments of of pride
1: another another point of pride um is just i'm sitting here at this amazing office and i'm seeing your firm grow uh, exponentially and i know now um danielle robitaille who is uh, a partner has now been added to the name of yes. the firm yes. uh, and what an incredible advocate she is and i i suspect that that growth is, is giving you a, a lot of pride too.
0: First of all, she's extraordinary and, <laughs> and, and deserves it. And, and we're lucky. We're so lucky and honored to have her her name join ours. Um, and in terms of the growth, yes, uh, you know, that is a, a probably a point of deep personal pride for me because when I left Eddie's, it was me and, and one other junior lawyer and my assistant. That was it. And I borrowed, as I talk about, first and last month rent from my parents. And I had... No business, no idea of where anything was coming from. I had not done anything to develop business. I, I'm lousy. I was lousy at that. And, uh, you know, when I look at that, and then, you know, I recall when, when Scott joined, Scott Hutchison, and we had talked about what our vision for the firm was, which was this idea of a, a true litigation firm, but coming out of a criminal core, but doing all sorts of litigations and developing a civil litigation. Group as well but our core was coming out of this this i think critical training of of being advocates of of being uh, criminal lawyers you know that was a a bit of a fantasy of ours that we were talking about because we had no reference point of that uh and now we look at where we are and that just gives me a huge sense of pride and i think you know it's some some Immigrant chick who breaks out on <laughs> her own, and so it it worked out, and I I think that's 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 something that I, I feel good about, and and what I feel good about is building um, a, a place where we've got these extraordinary lawyers, and that you hope, like if you have a legacy, the legacy is that you've you've left uh, a firm that has longevity to it that extends beyond beyond me or beyond Scott, and and has legs and reputation, and so. Uh, it's, it's, it's very, you know, there are like Sunday mornings when I come in alone and I'm walking through, I think, yep, yeah, you did okay. Right. You did okay. Yeah. Right. It feels so good. It's,
1: so it's morning. It's not like Eddie walking around at 1030 at, <laughs> at night, night wondering.
0: <laughs> Where is any, everybody? Does anyone work here? <laughs> no, I like it when it's empty, actually. I don't mind uh, having the place to myself.
1: Yeah. As you were telling your stories of, of, uh, Eddie it reminded me a lot of my stories uh, with Jack Pankowski because they're both kind of that old school mindset. Where is everybody, you know, go off to Osgood and look up some obscure thing. And, and, uh, and, and the, the story of driving him around is hilarious because that's what I would be doing all the time with Eddie, uh, sorry with, uh, with Jack and, and picking up sweets and everything. But I have to say, I, um, of of all the times I remember learning things in my articles, it was those drives out to London or Windsor for three hours that most people would dread. Yeah. And he would unpack the litigation.
0: A hundred percent. And think,
1: wow, that yeah. I thought it was just, you were just being, you know, funny, but there was, it's all planned.
0: Well, you know, I think we look at those, um, and our experience of acknowledging that it was tough but with a lot of affection fondness and appreciation for them you know we I certainly learned an unbelievable amount and it was in those moments and I think the contract that we signed up for is very different than I think the contract that's signed for now you know you didn't sign on I'm sure with Jack I certainly didn't sign on with Eddie thinking what are you going to give me he I was there to just learn and what he was giving me was the opportunity to watch him to work with him to talk to him on those exactly on those drives the the 3 hour drives where he's telling you what he's doing and why he's doing it and talking to you and you're learning this incredible stuff that there is no book uh, there is no no class that is going to teach you this and they're they're passing it on in what is really the history of our, our profession this true apprenticeship but you know with apprenticeship means you are driving, you are running around picking up laundry or doing what, like it's all part and parcel. And um, I I think it was an extraordinary experience. And look, I I knew what I was signing up for. I knew that it was gonna be a lot of hard work. And um, I also got exactly what I signed up for, which is a lot of education from him and from Mark and a lot of hands-on training and access to, you know, the greatest lawyer we've had. And so So I think it was- Arguably
1: both (laughs) of the greatest lawyers with Mark. And did you you have an appreciation of that when you're sitting there in the room on Mark's old blue uh, couch or or chair and listening to the two of them talk that this is Canadian legal history happening? I
0: I did because, you know, you have to understand, I don't know if it made it in the book. When I was in in, um, undergrad, uh, I remember someone asking me, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to work with Eddie Greenspan where else would you want to go and they're like ha ha that's that's real funny you'll never do that that was years before I article for him so when I walked into the firm uh, with Eddie and with Mark I knew they were legal icons and I was a fan I was fan I was fangirling I was starstruck by them and I knew their value they did not have to ever explain to me what their value was and so as I was watching that happen, yeah, I was actually very mindful of it. I would go in to watch it. You know, when they were batting an issue around, when they were workshopping an argument, um, I was in there listening to it because I, I, it was an incredible dynamic to see. It was a lot of fun also. Everybody loved law. You know, you, you lived and breathed it in that office. It was really like that um, to the exclusion of a lot of stuff, but that's what it was. And so it was exciting to to see the way they interact and how they'd come up with these arguments and sort of the back and forth. So, I was very mindful of it. I knew what I was watching, and I wanted to be there. And I was like the you know the the bratty kid that was always like sitting listening to try to figure out what's happening because, you know, throughout it all, um, I wanted to learn. And so, if Mark was preparing for an appeal. And then he'd leave and leave his notes on his desk i'd sneak in and look at his notes because i wanted to know like how the heck did you prepare how are you actually creating your notes and then i talk to him about it and ask him you know same with eddie why'd you ask that question like i would have never thought of that why did you do this when the witness did that had and they were so generous with their time and they were lovers of law and so they would share that with me you know and there are a lot of people that went through that office that didn't bother right they were just sailing through so it's really up to you what you make of it but I was obsessed I was utterly obsessed with law this was the only thing I wanted to do I I could think of nothing else and so for me uh, being in that environment was just the right environment for me and they loved it so much and I just uh, you know I got a a, a ton out of it and that's the truth I mean I'm not being Pollyannish I get it was tough it's exhausting you know Mm -hmm. what it's like they're tough characters to deal with demanding all of that but you know, you look back and you go, "Yeah, that that was a big contributor to to why I was able to do what I was able to do."
1: I remember um, walking back. Daniel Brown and I used to rent a um, a place together in our articles. We're walking back; as well past midnight, right up Bay Street, and a woman goes by on blades. And we're, we've got our suits and we're dragging our briefcases. <laughs> yeah. It's hot out. And she stops and she says, whatever you're doing, it's not worth it. <laughs> and keeps going. Yeah. We just kind of looked at each other, but it was a good night. You know, we were, we're sitting up reading wiretaps all night. And, and it, it was, was worth it to it you, right? It was worth it. Sure. It was worth it. So if you could have them in the room now, do you think you talk about law? Probably, right?
0: Well, we do. I mean, yes, uh, you know, if Eddie and I would go out uh, for lunch or whatever, I'd pop by his office even after I left. It, the conversations generally involved uh, three things. One, it was law, a lot of law, uh, a lot about restaurants, <laughs> a lot about travel, and we would talk for hours. I mean, that was just our thing with with Mark, you know, who I it was quite close to as well. Uh, it was the same thing. We would talk a lot about law and what, you know, this judgment was stupid. This was right. This was wrong. What the heck are they doing? Um It's not put on and I don't think for criminal lawyers. It is you don't go into this profession, which is I mean You were thinking of doing corporate law. So that's Mm the and you decided to go against the grain Uh, You don't sign up for this unless you're loving it Uh, There's just no reason for it other other than you genuinely love the stuff the subject matter and and uh, So I'm confident that uh, And I wish they were here. uh, We would be definitely talking about all of it and I I did find it very difficult uh, when they were both gone so quickly, uh, that, you know, I'd, I'd lost that because they were so much my sounding board that right. I didn't just, uh, it was, that was hard because yeah. I was so used to talking to them. And
1: both so close to one another too, which have been, right. m- must have been very hard for you.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: it, that sort of, whatever you want to call it, obsession, grit, curiosity, is that a trend you see among rising stars? In, in your firm and perhaps outside of your firm?
0: I, you know, it's it's funny because people, like some young lawyers will come to me and say like, I want your career, how do you do it? And uh, there's there's really, the, there's no secret sauce here. I'm not doing anything magical. It's hard work, it really is. And so the people that I think do rise are, and I, you see this in sports too, you see this in, in, in any profession. As somebody said you know everyone gives it a hundred percent it's the extra 10 right it's right. it's that extra push and i think uh people that become very good at this it's that extra grit it's that extra push it's 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 that little bit extra that um that puts you uh i think ultimately in a, a bit of a different category so i don't care what whether it's when we were articling students or or nowadays you know the the people that are stars are um, are doing that. And you can see it in them.
1: Mm-hmm. You described it as a crisis management job. I love that. It's <laughs> like, uh, I often think that way too. It's like an emergency room almost, It is. but you're not only the intake person, but you're also the surgeon and the aftercare and everything else that All comes of along with it off. Sometimes a mortician, you know, it's, it's a triage and, and beyond. Um, you mentioned, we hear this a lot in, Criminal law, especially what we do in the content, of compartmentalizing. And despite best efforts, it's, uh, you know, that really um, resonated with me because. We try, but sometimes it's just, it's hard to compartmentalize the things that we deal with.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think we don't talk about that a whole lot. And I, I know we're doing a better job of talking about mental health and, and those sorts of issues, but I do want to focus a little bit on, on being a criminal law practitioner, whether you're a defense lawyer, a crown attorney, a police officer. I, I think when we're a journalist, I remember talking to Christy Blatchford about this. Um, it's tough, the stuff you're dealing with, that we're dealing with every day, is awful Mm -hmm. um generally and you're dealing with people in extreme moments of crisis and i think people think that we're in the room and you know you're representing your client that you're not aware of what's going on on the other side of the room or or the pain that people are going through the distress and we are you can't miss what's happening and that wears on you you know we know what our role is and and everybody uh, maintains that but there there's a personal price always to be paid for that and uh it's probably one of the biggest costs i think of this this particular type of practice is that there is a personal price that's paid uh, it does wear it does affect your personality ultimately you, you can't just you can't be dealing with this stuff and then be happy go lucky you know you can't have a client go to jail and then be in a great mood at a dinner party or for the next few days it, it's it's impactful and so yeah it's a it's a it's a tough job on a personal level are there
1: things though that you've come to learn to try and minimize that because you know we've it's we do have to go on we do have another case next week and and you know that even from a sense of professionalism i have to get back in the game whether i like it or not right. because someone else is counting on me do you have tools that you would pass on to perhaps associates or? well
0: i don't think i have i mean we believe- you do have to when there's a lull uh, we're big fans of taking advantage of the lull because you got to use your downtime to there's always a recovery that happens afterwards as you know uh that that takes a bit of time uh so that's something obviously but i think at the end of the day uh, just picking up on what you said that the one tool for me and everyone has different tools but the one tool for me is that you are a professional you just and it's not about you and so you you're right. You're distressed about this client, but you've got another client that, you know, the next client is saying, "Okay, hey, well, what about me? You have got to move. You've got to move on and you've got to, you've got to bring the same energy and bring the same level of dedication. You don't have permission to, to sit and wallow. It's just not, not feasible for us because of our professional obligations and i think keeping that in mind gives you a bit of perspective uh, you know that that you you did what you could do and you now have to deal with the next person that that is in in front of you it is somewhat surgical
1: now mm-hmm. you said in your book that on most days you wouldn't change a thing but on those days that aren't <laughs> the most uh, do you ever wonder what else you might have Done, or what you think? Maybe if I ever switch gears, I would do this if I had wow. the ability to.
0: Well, I think I'd have different answers depending on like what time of <laughs> of my life you're talking to me. Uh, you know, at the outset, I i, I could see myself being in architecture, I love it. Um, uh, that's something that's interesting to me, but I, you know, I love frivolous stuff as well. I love art and design and fashion, mm-hmm. I could spend my life in that. Um, as I always said, I'd like to be a personal shopper if I was my only client. Um, so I love that stuff, but I, you know, as I get older, are there other things that I think are interesting? Yes. I mean, I found writing real, I didn't know how I would like it and I did, I enjoyed it. So I do like writing. I think there's a lot of different areas, as I said, our, our skills are, are pretty transferable and I'm not, I'm not sure this is going to be my, my, I'd like to have the opportunity in my life to do other things.
1: I don't so, know if you found the same thing, but, um when I went out on my own, I found a lot of fun and purpose in creating the firm and, and very much things like design, by the way, I love yeah. your, your neon sign Thank that says you. no guts, no glory in the background, okay. but that part's really fun. Yeah, I love creating the brand of not just who you are as a lawyer, but you know, the firm you can build and the people you hire and surround yourself with. And
0: Yeah. I, you know, a lot of people think that the firm management and, and the business of law is, is Depressing and they don't want to bother with it, but I agree with you There's a lot of creativity to be had there and it's interesting and we're never trained for it really in in law school at all And so you're learning a little bit on the fly and on the job and that is fascinating It's a a completely different challenge. So yeah, that has the growth of the firm and how you manage it and and all of it has been uh, definitely interesting for me as a person who gets profoundly bored very very quickly uh,
1: you said in your book you, you hate doing the same thing twice. I do. You will not even drive home the same way.
0: No, it's I still I still <laughs> switch it up. Uh, every day it's a debate as to what route I'm going to take. But um, yeah, I, I like to I like to try different things. I, I definitely like to push myself. I find that necessary for my mental health.
1: Yeah. What about business advice? Have you ever someone starting out their own practice? I mean, you. Readily admit that you kind of didn't know what you were doing yeah. and your dad was calling you all yeah. the time and wondering whether you had any clients yet. And I don't know if, if it's the same with you, but my mom still calls me and says, when are you going to the crown's office? But, <laughs> you know, I know. Uh, So uh, I, you know, I, I think that over the years I've learned a few things about business, but I, I'm really curious what your thoughts are on, on you know, not maybe the nitty gritty, but what, if you were starting out your own practice yeah. and that strip plaza again, having the conversations with your dad, what might yeah. you say to say, You're, "I'm going to be okay because I know this now"?
0: Yeah, I, I think that um, you know one of the things that I did not think about, and I think you have to think about, is where do your referrals come from? And so we're the the criminal uh, bar is is pretty insular, but while you'll get some of your referrals from it, you know, often your referral base is actually outside the criminal bar. So I wish someone had said to me why aren't you going to the CBA? Why aren't you going to the advocate society? Why aren't you introducing yourself in other, in other contexts? I wish someone had told me that I, I, I didn't know. And i you know, eventually figured out that that sort of, there's a broader, uh, place for you to introduce yourself. Uh, I, I did do a lot of, um, speaking and education, which was very helpful from a business perspective. I didn't do it for that purpose. I did it because I was quite conflicted between academics and, and, and practice, so I was trying to combine the two. What I would say, though, to a young lawyer starting out is that making yourself seen is is very important. And then the last thing I, I, I would say from a business development perspective is, you know, people... You know, if I have a meeting with somebody, it is very rare that I'm sitting down and talking to you about, well, what services I can provide. Cause I, I'm not, it's just not my nature. I'm more interested about you, about your family, about what mutual interests we have. And I think connecting with people on a human level is much more interesting. Cause the reason someone's going to refer you a case is not because you were the last person that had lunch with them, but because there's something about you that they like, that, that there was some sort of connection. You're a person they want to work with. And so that, authenticity and that and that making genuine connections and the 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 profession is far and wide where there are all sorts of people in it uh finding the people you connect with is really really important and again i was pretty um insular and pretty shy about that I, i just i didn't feel comfortable introducing myself i didn't i didn't love social settings and so that's been something that i had to work on to feel confident enough To sort of go in somewhere and introduce myself and start talking to people. Uh, I think I'm I'm getting over it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What does a great day look like to you? In or out of law or both? Oh,
0: wow. I mean, there's a variety of great days. You can have a great day at the spa. You can have a great day with your girls. Definitely, like any day. Just flying into New York, it starts as a great day. Uh, But, you know, being in court is... Even if it's a lousy day, is a great day for me. I love it. I I just love the challenge of it. I love the uh, the energy of it. I I, I just love it all. I, there's it's a very exciting place for me to be. I that is a great day uh, for me as well. Uh, but I've got you know I think I've got different gears, and there are a lot of things that um, interest me and would make for a great day.
1: What do you like the best? Openings, closings, direct or cross?
0: Cross. Yeah, for sure. Um, reply I love because that's it's more powerful than people think Uh, and openings rather than closing because you get to set the table
1: interesting so you think that's important setting the table understanding I I think
0: I I think being first out of the starting gate when you're when you're talking about litigation and being the first to set a narrative is critical
1: how do you do that when you're generally not permitted as a defense lawyer to open
0: you do it in every submission that you make. You do it in every cross-examination. You figure out the way you're going to introduce your theory through it. Uh, you cannot wait till the case is done, and you're doing it every time you're appearing. You're, there are a lot of ways, you know, often in emotion even. You, are, you have the opportunity to lay out the entire theory of your case. You know, when we, we did the Vice Admiral Norman case, and we were seeking third-party records Our notice of application quite deliberately was an entire recitation of what our theory of the case was so I wasn't waiting for the trial date I wasn't waiting for the my first witness to be called I I think it is such a mistake and when you look at studies of how people are persuaded uh, they are persuaded by the narrative that they first accept and then what they do is they'll take all the evidence that comes and fit it into the narrative that they've accepted in their mind so you can't hold back you have to figure out how to begin advocating right off the bat? Uh, how you begin to introduce your theory? That's why I like openings. I don't. I don't like having to come in after someone set the table and feel like I'm rebutting a position.
1: It's interesting you say that because um, you know what we do a lot of sex assaults, and um, you know lawyers will often gripe about the two seventy six requirements. But I've found that that's a pretty powerful time to set out your case, and I think judges getting that narrative for the first time it's it's at least something for them to pause upon do you tend to agree with that well
0: I I think in any motion that it allows you to do that I I think it's you know on a 276 it is important because you're also required and I think a lot of people don't do this to genuinely connect the, the relevance and and focus it on the theory of the case and and be uh precise about about all of it so yes i think it's an opportunity for you to articulate what your defense is in a very concrete way Uh, and i I think we shouldn't resist that i i I don't know why you're waiting to surprise anybody (laughs) but you know i i think people watch tv too much and think that's that's how you do it you surprise attack and it's just not it's not you that's not the most successful strategy to surprise people. Right. You know, I, I always love the story of, of Michael Jordan. Um, when he was playing basketball later on, he would get so bored. I've got two boys that love basketball and he would get so bored that, you know, the person defending him, he would look at them and he would say, Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go left, then I'm going <laughs> to go right, and I'm going to go around this person I'm go around. there. Okay, so now you know exactly what my play is. and would do it like it wasn't the surprise of it it was he was going to execute it didn't matter if you knew exactly what his moves were he was completing it and he was executing and so i I think we have to get over the idea that surprising the other side is is what's essential and critical i don't think that's where you win and uh, i think setting out your theory and articulating it uh, right off the starting gate is is very powerful
1: yeah it reminds me of uh a CPD, I a while back, Justice Durno saying, okay, get over yourselves. There's no state secrets here. The case is that's about so identity. True. You don't need to yeah. lay in the weeds. We all know what's going that's on, right. right?
0: If it's identity, if it's consent, if it's whatever it is, I mean, laying in the weeds is not a good strategy. It's just not, that's not the winning strategy.
1: But it does seem to be a strategy that's passed on. I know we're getting a bit inside baseball and defense lawyer in here, but it does seem to be what has often been the case like 10 years ago is always just wait wait and see and i totally agree with you that that the positive narrative is the way to go but um i don't know it seems some lawyers are still entrenched in that idea that i
0: I think they're entrenched in it but you have to also look at the context of that you know if you look back at uh, Jack Pinkowski or Eddie when they were practicing they did not remember stinchcomb is not in existence and you don't have the robust disclosure rules and so you know Eddie would often tell stories about walking in and getting handed disclosure the morning of and so nobody knew anything about anything it was it was very much where you had to lay in the weeds because you didn't know what the case was that you were meeting. Nobody sort of leveled the playing field. One of the things when you look back at Stinchcombe and those cases that talk about disclosure is this idea that nobody needs to be caught out by surprise anymore. And we sort of need to understand, given how robust it is now, uh, you know, I agree with you. You're walking into court. No, nobody is going to be shocked, right, by what what the issue is. And, and Justice Derno is is dead right. If it's identity, it's identity. And then, so go go ahead with it. You know, lay out your plan and execute on your plan. Uh, I think we're living in different times, and I think also the context in which we, we're litigating has changed a little bit. And this idea that you you're going to hold back and that's what's going to make you successful, it, it's it's not. What are some of
1: the other changes you've seen that sort of fundamentally shaped the way you advocate from how you would when you were back at Eddie's office?
0: I think there's more of an expectation um, to have your client testify. Mm -hmm. I think there is just an an assumption now that that and I'm obviously mindful of the law, but I think you think about it a little bit differently now uh, that that having your client testify is a very helpful thing. Generally, I think that's a shift that I, I i would say is quite contrary to what my instincts would have been probably 20 years ago um that's probably the the most significant shift and also the this idea that you do forecast exactly what your defense is going to be i i think that is something that um is a significant shift
1: you've all you've always dealt with complex cases but you know over the past five years that complexity has become so drastic with um technology um, you know, is are there some cases that just some defense firms aren't capable of handling because of that?
0: I think quantity, maybe. I think, um, you know, some cases are so document intensive that to navigate your way through it, it becomes a little bit difficult uh, if you don't have support doing it. And you know, I don't think that means a defense firm can't handle it. It may mean that they need to bring another firm on to assist them or another lawyer to co-counsel with them to make sure they have the team in place to to go through it. I, you know, I, I think no matter how big your, your firm is, and, and a good example, again, would be Norman, we were fine, uh, but you still feel outnumbered by the sheer resources on the other side. You know, there are days we'd be in court where there are nine lawyers on the other side for the department of justice for various groups and so of the government and a huge amount of quantity of material being being handed over to you so i think people forget that when we talk about as defense lawyers the enormous power of the state the enormous and limitless resources of the state that's a real thing it is very much a real thing and so you know, a defense lawyer that's representing someone can't just call the Center for Forensic Sciences and say, I'd like to hire five experts, right? Give me a report on A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the practice of, of law in this environment, where it's become more complicated, more uh, computer intensive, uh, you know, litigation is, is just more document heavy, I think can be challenging. But I don't think, as I said, that uh solo practitioners should step out of it it just may mean that you need to have co-counsel with you to be able to navigate all of it to manage it
1: kind of along that thread are are, what i've noticed especially with the legislation on sex assaults is that not just they have the resource of the state from an investigatory point of view but it's almost become litigation by attrition anymore it's like it's almost like trying to sue amazon for a package that didn't come and, you know, for when you combine that with the, the, the limitations of legal aid, um, I wonder if there's a way to meet that balance. And do you think courts are cognizant of how much is being asked of defense, particularly on legal aid certificates in these ways? I,
0: I think courts have no understanding. I'm sorry. Uh, this is going to upset the courts, <laughs> but of the reality uh, or very few of them of the reality of what defense practice is like. Uh, and I mean, the economics of it. Uh, I mean, the resources of it. Uh, you know, there, there is such a willingness to expect defense lawyers to work for free, for example, by, you know, let's say, refusing to let them get off the record if they're they're unpaid. The expectation that they donate a ridiculous amount of pro bono hours, which they do, our bar is phenomenal at that. I have to say, it's an extraordinary bar because people are so committed to the, the cause of it. Um, but these expectations are very challenging for for defense lawyers, and I, I don't think courts are, are particularly kind or sensitive to these very uh, significant realities. Particularly if you're practicing on your own or and you know with one or two people, uh, the the management of it, the management of documents, and I think they also forget. They think we we do is reactive. In other words, that you just show up on your court date and you start asking questions, and that's not how. Our life works. A lot of it is investigative. A lot of it is literally doing the investigation to be proactive in it. Uh, a lot of client management. A lot of all of this stuff, and and that is very time consuming and very expensive for for lawyers. And you know, it's unfortunate that that um, that legal aid doesn't keep step with that. What happens is senior lawyers stop doing this sort of work. You know, there were days where John Rosen was doing so many murder trials on legal aid. Mm. And how lucky were those people to have a lawyer of of his caliber? So you're gonna drive those people out when you make it unsustainable uh, financially. And the consequences isn't to lawyers, the consequences to the justice system and to members of the public and wrongful convictions and marginalized people, because those are the people that end up paying the biggest price when we shortchange, right? When you're cutting services, you're cutting services to those people and and they pay the price yet again.
1: Do you see uh, good defense lawyers getting out of the practice more than you would you know, when you first started practicing? Do you see less of a drive for people to become defense lawyers? It seems like it's always been something that's a bit fringe to get into, but I wonder if the economics like you're discussing now are, are really driving people away.
0: I think the economics are driving people to the crown's office from out of the private bar. I, I think the economics do drive people out of it. I think the economics also cause people to be general practitioners, so they don't focus on it um, because it's expensive. It's it's very difficult uh, to to be able to run a firm and uh, do what you need to do and and pay all the things you have to pay and uh, do it on on that sort of. Uh, budget and then demand, you know, pro bono hours as well on top of it. Do you think
1: it could be fixed by? I mean, I guess anything can be fixed by funding in a big sense, but realistically, can it be fixed by funding, or is it more a perspective issue uh, of how we treat defense lawyers and how we see them and what they're capable of?
0: Well, it's a combination. First of all, I think the funding comes from our perspective on what we're expecting in our justice system, and you know, I always say you, you have to fund attorneys as well it's not one side of 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 the equation both need to be properly funded so that we're operating at our highest level and i think what people don't understand i think members of the public is that cases that are most efficient litigated in the most efficient way you know cases that need to be pled out when they need to be pled out cases that are have a focused litigation tend to be very senior very experienced lawyers like when you've got the best of the best in court, uh, that's your, your most efficient day. That's your most cost effective day for the public. So, if what you're doing is driving those people out of it, you're going to end up with longer trials, more unfocused trials, more appeals, more everything. And so, you, you have to convince members of the public there's an intrinsic value in um, resources to what is a core, and particularly in this time a core foundation of our democracy, which is the justice system, which means we have to allow access to justice by all members of the public. And this is a part of it. This is one of the most critical parts of it. And when you're talking about racialized, uh, accused, this is where you see the inequities in the most significant way and the over-incarceration in the most significant way. So yes, it, it's, it's, it's what needs to be funded. The problem is it's not a politically palatable a place to put your resources, and in fairness, every department and government is fighting for resources. Uh, so that's the difficulty.
1: So I'll leave with two questions, which are probably hard questions, but oh no, it can be like two. Uh, what What are you most pessimistic about with where the justice system is going, and what are you the most optimistic about of where the justice system is going?
0: Those are tough questions. Um, <laughs> I stumped Marie
1: Hennon. I did. did it. Yeah, those are tough
0: questions. What am I most pessimistic about in terms of the direction of the justice system? I think uh, it's it's really not necessarily something that is coming from the justice system, but it's our reaction. And it's our reaction to the environment we live in and how people learn about our, what we do in court and about cases, and that's social media. I think we are... Uh, really uh, Victorian in our understanding of how people communicate I think we're Victorian in our understanding of what value you place on a tweet or a hundred tweets or 10,000 tweets because 10,000 tweets is not the country right it's not the population and so our reactive nature to all of that I think is a little concerning and in that regard I think that's largely rests with the the government that that reacts and legislates in response to, to that and they're they're not able to check themselves and temper themselves and be measured in their response that I'm profoundly pessimistic about because it's just really playing for votes and playing to to be reelected and not you know the 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 days of law reform commission and thoughtful change are, are things that are just, not being encouraged by lawmakers anymore yeah Does i really
1: sorry to interrupt but i really enjoyed your uh chapter on this on the effect of social media in the book i think it was the second last chapter chapter 11 mm-hmm. and you'd said it uh in a way that was more succinct and poignant than any other way i've heard it described and and for those of you listening who want to understand the dangers with this, I really encourage you to take the time to listen to chapter 11. It's, it's really powerful. Okay. Optimism. Let's leave on an optimistic note.
0: An optimistic note. I, uh, I think the optimism I found is that I, I actually still do have a fund and I'm not an optimistic person by nature. I have to tell you, um, I still actually have a huge measure of faith in our judges and in the lawyers that and and the prosecutors that do the work, I, I really do. I, I think I, I, it's really rare that you come across people that aren't trying to do their best and aren't trying to do the right thing and aren't motivated by the right principles in this country. And I would not say this in the United States. I, I think we are actually have a bit of a unique uh, perspective, and I hope that we maintain that. I hope we don't veer in the direction that our our um, Uh, our our neighbors have veered. I think that would be profoundly destructive. And I I hope we hang on to those traditions. Uh, I am optimistic that we still maintain that. Uh, That's very much a core of who we are. And and so that cynicism um, hasn't quite uh, seeped in. I think we struggle to to do the right thing. And that gives me a lot of optimism. Thanks, Marie. Thank you.